0: gerrymandering You've all heard the term. You probably know what it means, at least vaguely. Merriam-Webster says it's the practice of dividing or arranging a territorial unit into election districts in a way that gives one political party an unfair advantage in elections. But do you know that the origin of the term is right from here? Did you realize that it's named for a former Massachusetts governor who, by the way, went on to be vice president of the United States? Did you know that the very first gerrymandered district was right here in our backyard? And finally, did you know that we've been mispronouncing it all these years? At least some of us have. The term has been in the news a lot lately, but not so its origins. We'll see that part of the picture right now because it's also history. start right at the beginning. What is gerrymandering and how does it affect our election process? Well, it started as a way to manipulate the makeup of the Massachusetts state senate, but quickly was used for doing the same thing for legislatures around the world. Most commonly nowadays, you hear it in reference to the U.S. House of Representatives. Every 10 years, following the census, states are apportioned a number of representatives to the House according to their population. In all, the House has 435 members that are divided among the states. So every 10 years, the size of a state's delegation may change. It might go up or it might go down, all depending not exactly on the population, but rather the state's population in relation to other states. For instance, Massachusetts currently has nine representative districts. In the past, the Commonwealth has had more. In the latest census, the number stayed the same even though the population went up. Apparently, so did the other states. Even in years when a state doesn't lose or gain any representation, the population shifts within the state, meaning that the districts must be redrawn anyway. They all have to be about the same size. That's when it gets interesting. Somebody has to make that decision, and it isn't always done purely and altruistically. Someone is going to benefit by the new map and it's often to the advantage of the person or people drawing it. Sometimes this decision-making can get extreme, causing these districts to become, frankly, uh, funny-looking. The original idea was that they be drawn to create districts as nearly contiguous and compact as possible. But for 242-plus years, contiguousness has been in the eye of the beholder, and the actual rules are left to each individual state That brings us to the very first gerrymander. It was named for Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry. Before we get to him and his role, it brings up another subject. How do you pronounce the word? Everybody seems to say gerrymander. I just did. But is that how Elbridge pronounced his name? Not likely. By all accounts, he used a hard G, Gerry. Therefore, isn't it logical to say gerrymander? I grew up knowing a man named Roger Gary from Linfield, one of the towns in that first odd-shaped district. His family was well-known in the community. They owned the Gary Cider Mill, and Roger held various positions in local politics. Plus, he was an active member of the Historical Society. Gary Road is named for the family. Also, he was a descendant of the governor. He and his family insisted that they have always used the hard G back through the generations. That's good enough for me and apparently the rest of the town. Everybody there pronounces it Garrymander. I suspect that in Marblehead, Elbridge Gerry's birthplace, it's the same. Now, how did it happen? How did our governor get tagged with the infamy? Gerry was an important guy who did a lot of very important things. He helped shape the nation at its birth. He was a delegate from Massachusetts to the Continental Congress. In that role, he was one of the five base Staters to sign the Declaration of Independence. He was in very good company. John Hancock, John Adams, Samuel Adams, and Robert Treat Payne. He was a firebrand and the cause for independence. He was elected in December of 1775 and immediately began lobbying all other members to make the break from England. His fellow delegate from Massachusetts, John Adams, once said, if every man here were a Gary, the liberties of America would be safe against the gates of earth and hell. Thirteen years later, he was again a delegate, this time to the Constitutional Convention. He was one of the people pushing for the addition of a Bill of Rights to the document. He did not succeed in that effort. But later, when Massachusetts was ratifying the Constitution, Gerry again argued for a Bill of Rights to be added, much like the Declaration of Rights in the Massachusetts Constitution. The Massachusetts Convention, the sixth of the 13 states to take it up, ratified, but added Gerry's suggestions. After that, states 7 through 13 did the same. It started a trend. And immediately after the new government began, the Bill of Rights was added as the first 10 amendments. Gary was elected governor, and later, under President James Madison, he served as vice president. Despite his pedigree, his bona fide status as a founder, he's remembered for one thing, and one thing only. The gerrymander, or gerrymander if you prefer. Come to think of it, it's a dubious honor. If Gary were around today, he'd probably be just as happy to find that we got his name wrong. Initially, Gary retired from politics in 1798 after serving President Adams as a diplomat in France. If he had remained retired rather than running for governor in 1810 and winning, he would probably have been revered as a great revolutionary patriot. Instead, fate had other plans for the man from Marblehead. In his early career, Gary stayed away from party labels. He was officially a Democratic Republican, but was not a true party man. His inaugural address at the State House in Boston called for an end to the bickering between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. That all changed after he became governor, however. He didn't like the way the opposition, the Federalists, were protesting President Madison's foreign policies. He thought their criticisms bordered on treason. His previous relative non-partisanship was gone. In retaliation, he began replacing all the Federalists in state government. He convinced the state attorney general to sue various newspapers for libel and somehow took control of Harvard's Federalist-dominated Board of Trustees. His party, the Democratic Republicans, had gained control of the state legislature and they worked hard to keep it that way. Up to that point, senatorial districts were apportioned within counties. That all changed. Beginning in 1812, senatorial districts were to be formed without regard to county lines. The party then proceeded to draw them in ways to make it nearly impossible for the Federalists, at least not many of them, to win seats. The plan worked. Essex County, for instance, had always been dominated by the Federalists. Before 1812, the county had five senators, all Federalists. After the election, Gary's party had won three to the Federalists' two. The new districts were maligned by the Federalists as carvings and manglings. There are two schools of thought on Gary's participation in the plan. According to his son-in-law and biographer, James T. Austin, he wasn't to blame. In fact, he said that Governor Gary actually opposed the Senate plan and wanted to veto it. At that time, however, governors only used veto power when a law was felt to be unconstitutional. So he reluctantly signed it. Federalists, on the other hand, didn't buy it. They said that it was just one more case of Gary's newfound partisanship gone wild. My words, not theirs. The Federalists lost the battle. In fact, the party as a whole didn't last much longer. But they won the marketing war and ultimately tarred Gerry, tainting his previously stellar reputation forever. How did that happen? Well, it started as a comment at a dinner party hosted by Colonel Israel Thorndike, which developed into a scathing and lasting political cartoon, and eventually part of our language. The map of a district, mostly in Essex County, was long and skinny, It was one town wide, beginning in Salisbury, stretching to Amesbury, to Haverhill, Methuen, Andover, Middleton, Linfield, Danvers, Lynn, Salem, Marblehead, and sticking into Suffolk County in Chelsea. The New England Genealogical Register quoted historian John Ward Dean. A man named Hale drew the geographical figure which J.G. Cogswell exhibited at the party. It goes on to say that someone, no one knows who, said it looked like some sort of horrible animal that needed only wings. A man named Elkanah Tisdale took out a pencil and added wings, hanging off Methuen and Andover. He turned the wharves of Marblehead and Salem into claws, and Chelsea, with just a little alteration, resembled a tail. Another party goer said it looked just like a salamander. Joseph Alsop, a noted poet of the era, said, no, a gerrymander. And the name stuck. Hale, who had brought the drawing of the district to the party, was editor of the Federalist-leaning Weekly Messenger newspaper. He published it on March 6, 1812. It was reprinted in the Boston Gazette 24 days later and contained a description saying, the beast was born of many fiery ebullitions of party spirit, Many explosions of Democratic wrath and fulminations of a gubernatorial vengeance within the year past. The redistricting did its job. Although the Federalists got more votes statewide, the party won fewer senatorial seats in the general court. It didn't help Elbridge Gerry himself, though. The political shenanigans, whether they were his fault or not, took their toll. He lost his bid for reelection to Caleb Strong. It looked as if his career were over once again, but he made one more rebound. In James Madison's first term, his vice president, George Clinton, died in office, the first vice president to do so. For his second term, Madison chose party loyalist Elbridge Gerry to replace him. Gerry put his heart and soul into the job. One of the stated duties of a vice president is to preside over the Senate. Most VPs don't actually do that, leaving the real work to the president pro tempore. Not so with Gary. He took the role seriously, presiding nearly every day. Two years into his term, he became seriously ill, but still would not relinquish the role. In fact, he never even called for the election of a president pro tem, fearing the opposition-dominated Senate would choose one of its own, putting that person in line for the presidency, following the vice president. On November 13, 1814, he adjourned the Senate because he was experiencing chest pains. Later in the day, he passed away, becoming the second vice president to die while in office. As we know, that wasn't quite the end of Elbridge Gerry. His name lives on. The term gerrymander, or gerrymander, has been in common use since Gerry's time. It didn't actually make it into the dictionary, though, until 1864. The reason for the delay? According to H.L. Mencken, it was not included earlier because Noah Webster was friends with Gary's widow. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives.